Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, moving ahead on bail reform. There is a feeling that crime has worked its way into places we all thought were safe. The government is calling for tighter conditions on weapons charges and repeat violent offenders. Conservatives say it's not enough. I'll get reaction from the federal justice minister. We got a good deal with Volkswagen. We're going to get a good deal with LG Stellantis. A standstill over Stellantis. The company wants a new deal for its Windsor battery plant, but Ottawa and Queen's Park want each other to foot the bill for matching American subsidies. Former Provincial Minister Dwight Duncan weighs in. And WestJet labor woes. Pilots could strike as early as Friday. The company is preparing for disruption ahead of a holiday weekend. A union leader explains what pilots want and where talks stand. This is Primetime Politics. I'm Andrew Thompson and for Michael Serapio tonight. The government's bail reform plan is now before Parliament. Bill C-48 would expand the list of when an accused person has to argue why they shouldn't be kept in custody. That burden of proof would apply to more offences involving firearms and dangerous weapons, to intimate partner violence and repeat violent offenders. Judges will also have to consider previous violent convictions and community safety. Provinces and police have sought changes to Canada's bail system in recent months. So has the official opposition. But Conservatives say this bill is not enough. A common-sense Conservative government will reverse Trudeau's catch and release. We will bring in laws that require repeat violent offenders who are newly arrested for violence to, to stay behind bars with jail, not bail, jail, not bail, until their trial is done and their sentence is complete. We'll also get rid of Trudeau's catch and release parole policy and get rid of house arrest for repeat violent offenders. These are common sense answers that will bring home safety to our streets. Well, let's talk about Bill C-48 with David Lametti, Canada's Minister of Justice and Attorney General. Minister, good to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Now, C-48 comes four years after Bill C-75. That was another set of major reforms your government made to the bail system. Is this new bill an admission from your government that those previous reforms have gone too far? Not at all. In fact, we haven't changed anything in, in C-75. Uh, we've just, uh, we have just added a number of provisions targeting uh, repeat violent offenders, targeting certain offenses with guns, uh, knives, bear spray, weapons. Um, because that, the, the provinces had identified this as a problem. Uh, way back in October, uh, first identified at a federal, provincial, uh, territorial ministers meeting by British Columbia. Other provinces also weighed in. So we began the work at that point at the technical level. Um, we had the tragedy with, with Constable Pershala in December. Um, January, the, the premiers wrote a letter to the prime minister outlining their, their, uh, their concern. And we scheduled a first a, a justice ministers meeting in March. This is, this is what came out of that meeting. So then does, does this boil down to you then essentially responding to that push from provinces, responding to the criticism they've even leveled for months and including what we've heard today, even from the Conservatives on Parliament Hill? Well, look, I don't, I don't, ex I don't accept the, 
the criticism of Bill C-75. I think the, the changes that were brought to the bail system were very good. They, they and basically enshrined a number of Canadian Supreme Court decisions and I think made the system better. But I, I was listening to the specific kinds of, of uh, concerns that, that provinces and territories had and of course we acted in good faith to, to, try, to, to try to improve that. That's what we've done today. There's been a lot of back and forth between uh, the provinces, territories and us since last October um, and since that, first, that, that uh, Justice Minister's meeting in March. So we, we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of work with stakeholders, police associations. They came out in support of what we did today. Uh, as well as British Columbia and Ontario uh, already, and we just tabled it. Uh, so it, it, it really is the product of a lot of collaboration and cooperation. I do want to get your response to what criminal defense lawyers are saying. The president of the Criminal Lawyers uh, Association today calling this bill a huge step backwards from Bill uh, C-75, calling it uh, a knee-jerk reaction to some serious but isolated incidents of non-compliance, also saying that these changes ignore what the Supreme Court has been saying about release and bail conditions. What do you say to that? Well, I, I think, first of all, uh I, I think uh, very highly of, uh, uh, of Daniel Brown. He's been an outstanding, uh, I think, advocate for, for uh, criminal justice reform. Um, and I certainly do take what he, what he says very seriously. I do think we are within the charter, so I think we're, we're within the standards that have been set by the Supreme Court. These are very, and what we're doing here is a very targeted set of measures. Again, repeat violent offenders and um, uh, offenses with, with weapons. Um, where we're reversing the burden of proof. Again, because of the narrowness of it, I, I don't think uh, it represents the, the, I think, the, the kind of um, uh, negative step backward that, that uh, Mr. Brown believes it is. I think it's actually a, a, a working within the current system that we have, that we set in C-75 and the Supreme Court has set for us. So following from that, your government has made it a priority to look at the overrepresentation of Indigenous people and Black Canadians in the justice system. How does C-48 match with that priority? Well, that still is a priority, and, and we identified that as a priority with the Premiers in our, in our, our unanimous communique last March. Um, we, again, we think that because we've, we've narrowly targeted what we're doing, uh, that we won't have a negative impact on the battle against overrepresentation. That's still primordial to me and uh, me as a justice minister, but it should also be primordial to Canadians in general. Okay, so I do want to ask you then about some of the specifics sure. in the bill. You are creating a reverse onus for serious repeat violent offenders involving weapons where the accused is convicted of a similar offense within the past five years. So. Why did you decide on that scope of, of taking that five-year time period and making it specifically about offenses with weapons? Well, again, this is something we heard from the Premier. So, so what we're trying to do with that provision is attack a pattern of behaviour. So again, the repeat violence with the weapon. And so keeping it within five years means this person is continuing to do this. And what we're doing then is reversing the onus for that. That person now has to prove, if they do get rearrested. Uh, that, that they ought to be out on bail and that it's not a threat to public safety. Um, the default position is they will, they will be detained until their trial. So again, it's the pattern. It's a fairly tight uh, set of, of, it's a tight time frame with a tight set of criteria. And, and we think that that is not only charter compliant, 
but meets the, meets the concerns that were raised by provincial justice ministers. Now, another aspect of C48 deals with judges and the fact that they're going to have to uh, look at an accused person's violent history and the effect of their release on community safety. That's going down on paper in the bill. Now, right. It seems like this would be, these would be obvious matters that judges would already be considering. So uh, why is there a need then to kind of codify this into law? Yeah, well, we're codifying a procedure, right? We, we give judges discretion, and I think that is, is one of the hallmarks of our system. It's one of the real strengths of our, our system, the discretion that we give to judges and justices of the peace, in this case for bail. What we're doing is structuring their discretion by asking them to think uh, to think through uh, a couple of different steps. And a number of them would have done this already. But uh, we have had cases. Again, there, there was a case of an offender in, in the Yukon um, in, who was supposed to be returned to the, uh, the Vuntutwichan nation and, and indigenous nation. And they, didn't, they were afraid. They, didn't, they hadn't been consulted. They felt they should have been consulted. So what we're trying to do is, is at least ask judges to take into consideration those kinds of concerns Many of them were already, but in cases where they weren't, we're hoping to structure their discretion so that they will at least ask the questions. We're not telling them how to decide, but we are, ask, we are asking them to think through a certain set of issues. Okay, I want to finish with you on this because twice in the preamble of this bill, you talk about the need for people to have confidence in the administration of justice. As you mentioned, a lot of this push for bail reform came after the killing of OPP officer Greg Pierschala. There have been a number of other violent incidents uh, making headlines. What is your message to Canadians who perhaps aren't feeling all that confident in their justice system? Well, I think that the, fundamentally our justice system is a very good one. I think it, frankly, is the best one in the world. Uh, I haven't seen one that's better. And, and, and I've been in the law all my life. That being said, we understand that there are that there are fears and there are concerns, and we're trying to address those fears and concerns in a in a reasoned and rational way. I don't believe you can boil criminal justice down to a slogan. I don't believe you can boil bail reform down to a slogan, as as frankly the opposition does. That leads us nowhere. It it, it leaves us empty, quite frankly. So what we're doing by listening to people, by listening to experts, police officers who've supported this bill, by working with our counterparts in the provinces, by working with other stakeholders, including ones who disagree with us, we are trying to come up with a balanced piece of legislation. I think in that sense, they can have a great deal of confidence in the system that where there's a perceived gap, we're fixing it. Okay, we have to leave it there. Justice Minister David Lametti, I want to thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. The Prime Minister is in South Korea ahead of this weekend's G7 summit in Japan. Justin Trudeau will address the National Assembly and meet South Korea's president. Security is on the agenda. So is the economic relationship. And those talks come with Stellantis halting construction of its EV battery plant in Windsor, Ontario. That plant is a joint venture with South Korea's LG Energy Solution. And the industry minister hopes for some face-to-face -face time in Seoul with LG's CEO. Francois-Philippe Champagne says he's confident of a deal to match U.S. subsidies, but is repeating the federal government's call for Ontario to offer more. We want to reach a deal which would be good. 
uh, for the auto workers, for the industry, and for Canadians. And now we're saying to our uh, provincial friends in Ontario, uh, be with us as you have always done and as we have always done together to make sure that we provide the good jobs, uh, the opportunities, because these plants are there for probably 50 to 100 years. So there's going to be a lot of economic benefits to the people in Ontario. And that's why we think it's only fair in the Federation that the province would pay their fair share when it comes to these uh, uh, strategic investments. Well, let's take a closer look now with Dwight Duncan, a former Ontario Deputy Premier and Finance Minister in the McGuinty Liberal government. He also knows Windsor very well, and that's where he's joining me from. Mr. Duncan, good to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. You know, you dealt with big automakers as a minister. And right now we have Stellantis saying the federal government has not delivered what was agreed to, that the company is looking at contingency plans that presumably don't include Windsor. What do you make of what we're hearing from Stellantis right now? Well, there's a serious issue that has come into play since this plant was first announced, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which has upped the ante on how much money governments are going to be called upon to put into these projects. Um, I know the federal government has been talking to Stellantis since before the Volkswagen announcement. I know that uh, these negotiations have been ongoing. I know that Stellantis is a big company with a huge investment uh, that could very easily move to the United States. So um, make no mistake, uh, we're, we're in a very tenuous position right now. I believe Canada's handling this properly. Um, we've all got to get used to either dealing with this new world or if you choose to get out of it, just realize that all these jobs that are going to be created, not just at Stellantis, but in many other uh, places, uh, will will bypass Canada and more importantly, uh, from our immediate perspective, Ontario. So do you think this is the new normal then, that Canadian governments are going to have to be dealing with at various levels in dealing with these large production subsidies uh, coming from the Biden administration, as long as that Inflation Reduction Act remains in place? Absolutely. And again, you know, it's, listen, this money, is this is a lot of money. There's no question. Um, but I'll remind you, back 12 years ago, we put not quite this much, but between the federal government and Ontario, we put a heck of a lot of money into both General Motors and Chrysler to keep those companies afloat. And so uh, with this change, you know, I was frankly surprised that the provincial government only put $500 million into, uh, into the uh, Volkswagen plant in St. Thomas. Uh, they're going to have to come to the table the way Ontario always has. Um, you know, $500 million out of you know, say it's somewhere between nine and 11 billion for argument's sake. Now that's not nearly as close as the typical Ontario contribution has been by both conservative and liberal governments and NDP governments in this province in the past. Well, I wanna get your take on that on the political side of this because we've got different levels of government talking to each other saying the other side needs to be stepping up, Doug Ford. Uh, says he doesn't have the federal government's spending power, that Ontario is, is as you say, offering the same amount to Stellantis as to Volkswagen. Meanwhile, uh, here in Ottawa, we've heard the finance minister saying federal resources aren't infinite and that it is the Ontario government that has to step up. So what do you make of the fact that we're hearing all this in public? Well, this is what happens when, when you know, uh, 
a government tries to take credit for something and doesn't put enough money in. I mean, and, uh, the, the situation in Ontario has always been that the provincial government has stepped up much more than the Ford government is. Um, if they want to preserve this investment in Windsor, they ought to come back to the table. Um, in my experience, you know, we put, I think it was $9 billion federal, $5 billion provincial into the Chrysler and General Motors uh, bailouts back in 08, 09. You know, every major plant in Ontario just go up and down the 401. You had Ford Essex Engine here in Windsor, federal, provincial government uh, participation, Toyota, which our government did. Um, you know, there's been a raft of other investments. So, you know, the Ford government has got, in my view, should be making the auto sector a greater priority right now. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This amount of money that's invested will be paid back very quickly in the form of taxes, employment, and all that goes with it. If Premier Ford wants to see it in Indianapolis, that's what's going to happen. And uh, I'm quite certain that the federal government is quite prepared to work. I remember Premier Ford was here uh, when we announced the Stellantis plant, and, you know, taking credit due, duly, they put 50% of that amount in. Now they're being called on for more. Um, I was astounded at how little they put into uh, the Volkswagen plant. And uh, this is certainly his province, province that I represented as well, his province gains, and this is why Ontario's always been the only subnational jurisdiction involved in these sorts of things, um, his government will be the biggest beneficiary. The auto industry is almost entirely centered here in Ontario. The, the nice thing about the EV piece is that, you know, we will be needing more minerals, not only from northern Ontario, but other provinces. But make no mistake, his government benefits. And that's why our government dis didn't hesitate to put the, the, I think it was $4.9 billion into the General Motors and Chrysler bailouts. And those companies have continued to employ people, continue to pay taxes. And when this new development of EVs came along, they're, they're, they already have their footprint here. So it's, it's incumbent, in my view, on all governments to work together, save the cheap political shots that we heard from the Premier yesterday and from others, and just get down to the hard bargaining. I think there's an opportunity here. I'm confident as the deputy prime minister was, as Minister Champagne said apparently today in Seoul, that we'll get this done. But make no mistake, the Americans play for keeps and they probably got a, a billion dollars in the ground here in Windsor. I mean, it's a huge piece right now, but if they get 11 billion from the US, uh, they'll just walk away. And I think everyone needs to take that seriously. And I, I suspect too, Stellantis has, has been, I shouldn't say I suspect, Stellantis has been talking to the federal government since uh, prior to the Volkswagen announcement, as I understand it. And those talks have been ongoing. I have a feeling they're getting impatient. Um, and uh, believe me, I, I remember dealing with Chrysler when they were in no position to play hardball, saying to me, if you folks don't come to the table, we'll take all of our production in Ontario. At that time, it was Brampton and Windsor, and we'll move it to St. Louis. All right, and well, it was that 
that's stark. All right, well, we do have to leave it there, and certainly we'll see how these talks play out uh, in the coming days and weeks. Dwight Duncan, I want to thank you for your insight on this tonight. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to join you. WestJet and Swoop passengers could face major disruptions this holiday weekend. Pilots have issued a strike notice for Friday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. The WestJet Group has responded with a lockout notice and says to prepare for significant flight reductions. The company says it has a generous offer that goes beyond other Canadian airlines. Right now, we are going to get the pilot's side. Bernie Lewell chairs the Airline Pilots Association Master Executive Council for WestJet. He's in Toronto. Mr. Lewell, thanks for joining me. Good afternoon and thanks for having me. So let's start with the current state of talks right now. Why did you feel the need to issue the strike notice? The first day we could have issued the 72-hour strike notice was last Friday. Uh, talks were progressing at a rate that was uh, uh, appropriate for the time and so we did not and uh, we, we did not issue the strike notice at that time. Uh, yesterday things kind of ground to a halt on certain aspects of, of what, what uh, what both sides are looking for. And uh, so we felt it at that time appropriate to, to uh, indicate that, that we're stuck and that we need the help of uh, a strike notice to, to move both sides closer together. As that strike notice has come out and as the, the airline has responded with a lockout notice, are the two sides still talking today? Yes, absolutely. We're committed to talk for the, for the next three, three days at least until uh, 5 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time on on Friday. We want to get a deal. Uh, ultimately, the pilots want uh, want want to keep flying. We we don't want to bring the the airline uh, to uh, to a halt at all. We've got passengers that are counting on us. We realize that we've got other employees at WestJet that uh, that are counting on us coming to work as well, and we recognize that. Uh, again, we we want to come to a deal with the, with the company, but it's got to be a fair, equitable deal that. That, uh, that looks after the needs of the pilot group and, and quite frankly, the airline. Look, we've, over the last year, we've, we've lost 260 of our pilots from the WestJet group of companies. They've, they've gone, uh, they've gone to other airlines, both north and south of the, the border. Uh, they are talking with their feet and, and that's gotta stop. The, the hemorrhaging of pilots has to stop. Our CEO has stated this is a growth story. Uh, it's not a growth story without pilots. So we need, the, we need WestJet to come to the table and negotiate a, a good deal, a, a deal with us that will uh, retain the pilots we have, the experienced pilots we have, and attract new pilots to this company. So what is the major outstanding issue right now? Is it compensation? We have made great progress on job security and scheduling. There's still a few outline uh, uh, articles in both, both, both those areas that, that need, uh, need, need to be fixed. But I think we can get there. So really, it is up to compensation now. And to put this in perspective, West ship pilots right now are paid about 45% of the North American average. That gap is not going to close, and we're not asking for it to close. What we're asking for it is that gap doesn't get any wider and, in fact, narrows a little bit. And and again, that is for the, for the, for the health of the company. We need the, this company to grow. And... Uh, and the way you do that is you, you retain your experienced pilots and you hire new pilots. We're not doing that under the current conditions. 
Now, WestJet, in response uh, to the strike notice, says that you're looking for U.S. level wages, and that's unreasonable in Canada. Uh, the airline says its pilots are among the best paid in Canada, but you know if they were to give you a contract on par with U.S. pilots groups, this would be financially unworkable. It would put the company's future at risk. What's your response? Well, it's a frustrating uh, statement for WestJet to make because they know what we're asking. And it is not Delta wage, it, it, wages. It is not American wages. It, it is narrowing the gap between us and the American airlines. Uh, but uh, but we're, we are not asking for U.S. wages. So I, I, I find it frustrating that they're coming out and spreading spread that misinformation. Now, we saw, Canadians uh, saw the major disruption to air travel over uh, the Christmas and New Year period. We're coming up on a, a long weekend here in May. WestJet is Canada's second largest airline. So if, if you and your colleagues do decide to go on strike, what is that going to look like for passengers? Ultimately, again, I have to reiterate, the pilots do not want to strike. We want a deal that will will keep pilots in Canada and uh, and not chase them away to, well, keep pilots at West and not chase them away to other airlines in Canada or down to the States. If we feel uh, at 5 uh, a.m. Eastern time on Friday, it is necessary to to uh, to en enact the work action, uh, the, the, air, airline, the aircraft that are in the skies will land at their destination. The, the aircraft that are in, in, uh, on the ground with the, the doors open, they will not depart. And that is something, again, that is the last thing that this pilot group wants to do. We want to serve our passengers and, uh, and, and we want to uh, work with the company to come, up, come to a fair, equitable deal, again, that, that allows WestJet to grow. That's, that's our goal. So finally, then, if, if Canadians who have flights uh, this weekend on WestJet or Swoop are looking at all this, feeling uncertain, worried about their plans, uh, what's your message to them as you continue these talks? Again, I, I will reiterate that uh, that our my message to them is we're going to look, we're going to try as hard as we can to come to a deal and and prevent uh, you from from being displaced from uh, where you want to go. Uh, that being said. I'm not sure what the company's reaction will be, so uh, they might want to call the company and find out uh, what their alternatives are or, or what their methods of compensation are. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Bernie Lowell, I want to thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Finally tonight, a parliamentary probe is underway into China's alleged intimidation of MPs. That includes Conservative Michael Chong, who brought forward the privilege motion. And earlier tonight was the first witness at the procedure committee. Chong wants the House to formally censure the Chinese official expelled from Canada last week. And he wants the Speaker and MPs better informed about foreign interference threats. Western democracies will continue to come under increased threat from foreign interference by authoritarian states. Foreign governments like the PRC and the Russian Federation will not stop trying to coercively influence our institutions to bend our actions to their interests. To think otherwise is naive. An urgent whole-of-government approach is needed for this serious long-term threat. A national security review is long overdue and I recommend the government undertake one as soon as possible. 
The review must go beyond the Prime Minister and our intelligence agencies. It must involve, as an equal partner, Parliament, as the institution which is the beating heart of our democracy. The government needs to act. To not act, to make our democracy to not act is to make our democracy needlessly more vulnerable to the threat of foreign interference. I am confident that MPs can rise to the challenge. Let's learn from our democratic allies. Let's act now to deter future foreign interference in our democracy. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for everyone here at CPAC, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.